0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Teenage E Legs podcast. This episode is inspired by some feedback I had from some listeners of the earlier episode I produced, wanting a little bit more background. So I thought the Shakedown Cruise would be a good way of providing a little bit more, some snippets of um, sort of background and how we did what we did. What is a shakedown cruise? It sounds pretty alarming, but actually it isn't. It's typically and traditionally the the first trip of a a new ship or vessel um, with a new crew, or indeed a a vessel that um, has taken on a new crew. And the shakedown cruise is really designed to... um, work out what the niggles are in the boat, what needs fixing immediately, what you can manage with and also um, for a lot particularly for crews that are drawn from uh, many different walks of life it's um, learning how to um, to work together. Um, obviously being a family when you've all grown up together, the, the, the sort of shakedown um, aspect of crewing is perhaps um, less about um, getting to know each other but uh, more about finding out what your strengths and weaknesses are. Um, so we'd had um, Dragonfly launched in the port of sail and um, really the, the Shakedown Cruise was going to kick off pretty much as soon as we would um, sailed through the lake system of uh, Gippsland and um, headed out into um, into the Bass Strait in the Tasman Sea in Australia. Now for us the, the Shakedown Cruise was perhaps um, quite confident about it because um, Dragonfly wasn't our first boat. I, um, I probably alluded in a, uh, in a previous episode that um, we'd, ha- we'd had another a boat that had given us some um, previous experience. Um, she was a catamaran-like dragonfly, also built by my father. An older design, um, all the accommodation in Tingira was um, in the hulls. Um, so she had an open wing deck, unlike dragonfly, um, and she was a catch rig. So she had two masts, a main mast and a mizzen mast. Um, dragonfly um, was a sloop with a single mast and um, Tinguera was mostly used for holidays in in the lake system i mean we were uh, we were young as children then I think I was probably sort of um eight or nine something like that and so it was um, weekends away the old week um we even spent a christmas on her um but it it was again in e- easy conditions to sail in the lake system um yes, it can get quite um uh, windy at times but it's it's a fairly straightforward water for um to navigate in particularly if you're um, um, Parents with young children who aren't really contributing uh, much to the sailing of the ship, and certainly Tingira was a good um, a good experience for us. And she looked magnificent under full sail when she had um, both the um, uh, uh, both the masts fully sailed, and she had a set of sails that um, spread between the two masts as well. Um, indeed, once, um, and I think now looking back with hindsight, it was probably my parents testing the water. We were right down at the the entrance of the lake system into the Bass Strait, and my. Um, Father took us all out on, on Tingira, right out into the in, into the ocean there, sailed around for a few hours and then came back. And I think it was very much a, um, a testing of the water, getting a feel for the air and all that sort of thing. Would we have taken to the sea in Tingera? Um Possibly not. Um, as I say, the accommodation was in the hulls. It was quite cramped. Um, all three children were in one hull. Um, but we were small enough, that didn't matter, and my parents had the other hull, but if we were going to do a a circumnavigation of the the globe, in the words of a immortal movie, we were going to need a bigger boat. So Tingira probably probably would have been sold had not tragedy struck. Um, There was some severe flooding in the the lake system in 1978, and uh, she was lost at her moorings when the the river burst her banks, and the trees around um, were collapsed and washed down, and one actually crushed her. My parents, being quite resilient, overcame that um, setback, I think, and were quite undaunted and hence the the idea and the dream to to build Dragonfly and and set off a few years later um, was born. And so wind the clock on and there we are, um, same entrance um, out into the Bass Strait, different ship and a very eager crew poking their nose again out into the um, the, the wide ocean, or I should say sea really, it's the Bass Strait empties into the um, the Tasman Sea there. And so our plans for this sort of shakedown uh, cruise I think in, involved um, going around the um, Australian coast up towards Sydney, um, just doing what we call sort of day hopping, sailing each day and anchoring each night, And that would be a, a good early test. And then we would strike out from Sydney into the Pacific and use the first sort of um, transoceanic um, leg to see how she was performing at sea. So, um, as I say, the shakedown looks at both the the crew and the uh, and the ship. And the one thing I personally discovered, literally as soon as we turned into the Bass Strait, was I got seasick. So, sea legs and getting those sea legs um, became quite a an important thing for me. Um, so early on, I I certainly found when you were. The boat was quite close to the coast and you could see a fixed coastline with the waves breaking on it and the boats bobbing up and down it can be um, uh, quite motion sickness inducing so that was something i had to to get to grips with but um, we were happy to discover that the boat performed um, almost as it pretty much as expected um, in terms of the sort of sailing day by day and um, she was quite easy to handle my father had built her I think within a view in mind that he could sail it on his own while we were all taking our time to get to grips with it. So she had, for example, um, bearing in mind this is the early 80s, she had one of the earliest satellite navigation systems, um, sort of, you know, a little computer box that was um, in, in the cabin there. And um, my father had built the, the sort of speed logs that measure the boat's speed and various other um, instruments um, to be wired into the, into the sat nav so it could take a lot of instrument readings as well and it could try and the computer could do what they call dead reckoning when it wasn't getting a satellite navigation fix. Um, And it was Discovering how this was all a relatively new way of doing things. Um, most boats then had what we would call a mechanical log, where the speed readout went straight to a dial, and you could just um, you could read the, the speed directly. So the boat, you might say, was high tech, but I think we were guinea pigs because a lot of the technology at that time probably was designed without a real understanding of what the marine environment and what the salt and sea air might might do to them. Um, um, so that, these are the sorts of things we needed to find out. Um she also had an automatic pilot that, that again was linked to the satellite navigation system. So my father could actually just set a course and the, the automatic pilot would um steer it. So um but for day-to-day trips we obviously didn't um he certainly didn't need all those those particular gizmos and um the sort of early navigation when you're inside of land is is done by um taking bearings off various um um significant marks, head um, headlands and um hills and that sort of thing and then plotting away on a chart and gave my Father was quite skilled at that, and that was one of the things he started teaching me. Um, was how to how to do that um, kind of thing, and fix your position from points on land, which again found interesting and took my mind somewhat off the um, the the seasickness. So, um, so we were duly sort of pottering up the um, up the coast of Victoria and in New South Wales there, and um, stopping each day, um, and in some ports we met. Um, we would meet up with people we knew um, who were sort of aware of the trip we were planning, which was um, always a nice, uh, a nice break. Um, the weather was fairly consistent, um, as I recall. We certainly didn't encounter any sort of severe weather, in that that particular um, particular leg. Um, and there was some quite coincidental meetings as well. We were sailing into one. Um, port on the New South Wales coast, Um, its name escapes me sadly, Um, but it has very high cliffs that you sail in between, but on top of those cliffs is a golf course, and by the time we'd come in and tied up the jetty, two friends of my parents were standing there waving, saying we were playing golf, and by sheer coincidence recognised the boat and came down to see us. Further um, up, in fact just before, I think it was the last port before we made uh, Sydney, Really poignant encounter with a boat as we were coming into um, this uh, harbour called Bateman's Bay. There was a, a boat setting out, flags gaily flying from all its masts, um, and as we passed and waved at them, they waved back, and the captain sh- called out gaily, "Tahiti, here we come!" So they finished the shakedown, and we're off doing their um, their, their their passage, and that, that's quite a long uh, a long trip to do. But we waved and wished them good luck and enviously um, thought well we've got a a few more weeks just um, testing and learning as it were. But sadly we heard um, not long after about three days out just past New Zealand they were hit by a severe storm and the boat was did what's called a 360 or completely was completely turned over by waves and strips all the the masts off. They were all rescued but they lost the boat after barely a week at sea um, which brings home some of the risks we um, we run and i'll probably touch upon those sort of things in a in a subsequent episode so we got to the sydney which was really the final sort of point where we were really um in the harbour there double checking that the, the boat was was fine and we were all happy we'd all got used to the idea of getting up early in the morning raising anchor sailing up to the next bay coming in before it got dark settling down that sort of thing so from sydney the plan was to strike out to new caledonia a french island out in the pacific about a 10 14 day crossing, so Sydney was very much about provisioning the boat. Um, so got this out on our last port for um fresh food and all that sort of thing. Um, various um checks and and so on and so forth. And um, then um, off off we we set. And so it was it was quite um, quite a different feeling going out of Sydney Harbour um, compared to Lake's entrance because it was just these day trips we were now setting out and landfall wasn't going to be for another um, another two weeks. And uh, so far, um, all was going well. Um, again, the, the boat had a fairly traditional rig of uh, sails, mainsails and uh, headsail. Um, there was coming in at the time, something they called self-furling or roller-furling headsails where you could roll a single sail that was permanently attached to the stay so you didn't have to leave the cockpit. But um, we had a tr- traditional set of um, headsails so the varying sizes that you changed up and down to according to the wind. Because I think at that time we were a little bit concerned that the, um, the it was an untried um, technology, and we wanted to keep it fairly simple. But by that stage, um, we were reasonably confident amongst us we could help my father in most conditions change. So the the biggest headstall, I think, was the the number one. It was a big light um, headstall for light winds. And you changed all the way down to a storm jib, which was literally nothing more than a pocket handkerchief for when you were in a really bad storm. And you just needed a little bit of sail up to maintain some way and uh, steering control. So we we got reasonably good at um, dropping the the headsail and um, unclipping it and clipping the the next one on. You know, the standing on the catamaran um, uh, bows, you've got uh, the safety net and a, um, a catwalk in the middle where the sail comes down, and two of you could stand there reasonably um, good seas and and change the sails and that sort of thing. Um, so we got. Good at that and we were quite competent at um, helping my father jibe the boat so when you change direction and the boom swings across to take up the new direction of the wind and you have to let go the um, the various sheet ropes that hold the sails tight and as the sails fill you then winch them back in and so while well, again well my father could do that on his own it, it's certainly a lot easier if you've got someone like me on the on the headsail sheet winding that in and say so one of my sisters on the mainsail um, uh, boom sheet and just um, tightening that up so it, it allowed my father to Concentrate on getting the boat um, pointing in the into the wind the way he wanted. So our first cruise um, um, was was off, and we were looking forward to dining on various French cuisine. And uh, in a couple of weeks' time, unfortunately, the the gods, being what they are, decided to oblige and said, "Ah, oh, shakedown cruise! You need to test all sorts of conditions." And so halfway into the Tasman Sea, they threw an almighty gale at us, and a sea like you I'd never seen before. Um, it was um, very uncomfortable, and my sea sickness returned with a, an absolute vengeance. Um, possibly not helped by the initial configuration, uh, Dragonfly's um, diesel fuel tanks were in the stern uh, sleeping compartment. So just above my head was a big shelf where one of the big diesel tanks was. So there was always that slight lingering smell of, of diesel. And actually, just well, I had to climb over the, um, the port. Uh, diesel engine housing to get into the bunk as well so it's that lingering smell of salty bilge water and diesel in your cabin when you're feeling slightly unwell doesn't help the old sea legs Um, so we were um, we were we were finding it increasingly harder and harder to go in the direction that we wanted to go the storm was was really um, um, showing its teeth and in the end we did something that's known as lying a hull where you basically reduce the sail to the bare minimum and um just hold your position in t- into the prevailing wind and sea and just ride the storm out in extreme cases when we carried one of these things, these things you can launch a sea anchor which is an old parachute and you deploy that it fills with water uh, rather than air and then just acts like a block of, of concrete and you can use that to hold you um in position but you that's a sort of a method of last resort so we spent two two and a half days lying a hole ie going nowhere being battered by wind and sea and. Looking out of my little porthole, I could see these seabirds, they called them storm petrels, I think, and these little birds were gaily flying around in the middle of this storm, and they would flick the tops of the waves with one of their feet as they flew past, as if to poke fun at me in my misery and uh, discomfort, and as if to say, hey, what's wrong with the storm? You should be enjoying yourself. Anyway, after um, two and a half days, um, the decision was taken to turn away and sail sort of with more with the the prevailing weather and we headed for an Australian island called Law Howe Island for for shelter. And so, um, and we stopped there for a few days. So you might say my my first shakedown cruise, I was left feeling I hadn't um, really passed the test with flying colours being um, incapacitated with um, quite severe seasickness to the extent um after a week at sea the the weight loss i was getting particularly bearing in mind i'm only about 13 at this age I was giving my parents some calls for concern because i, I really wasn't eating and, and and drinking enough but um so i i, I realized there and then i had a um, um a bit of a um a learning curve to go to acclimatize um uh, and get my sea legs but um if i jump forward ahead now one of the things i i, I learnt, in terms of getting my sea legs and avoiding seasickness, was being occupied uh, when we were at sea, and I found this out in a rather unusual way. I think um, we were sailing from New Caledonia to a, um, a small island that was part of that group. Um, we were just going to sort of visit, and stay there for a week, and we were still within the main lagoon, but the wind. Um, was brisk and it was good sailing wind it was exactly where the the boat wanted it she was fairly flying along and we had a, a the number one headsail up and the mainsail was, was full and the boat was fairly flying along at a, a good old speed um, but it got to the point where um, my father being prudent wanted to reduce the, the sails so it invo- he asked me to come and help him um, take the, the headsail off and clip the, the smaller number two headsail on which I wasn't feeling great I was sort of sitting in the cockpit feeling green and uh, I think with hindsight, he decided if he, if, I, if he could keep me busy, I'd be better. So I duly, we had, the sea was such, and the boat was pitching quite a lot. This was, you couldn't stand on the deck as easily as I made out earlier. This was one where we had to clip on harnesses. And and indeed I found that um, once we got up there, the, the movement was such, I found it easier to sort of lie on the catwalk with my father sort of crouching above me. And um, once my sisters had um, released that, um, the halyard we were pulling the sail down and as my father pulled it down I unclipped it and sort of tried to sort of roll it up and I remember looking back and seeing probably about two-thirds of the hull out of the water at any one time as she was skipping along the waves um, which I thought was quite exciting at the time um, and then we duly we got thoroughly wet and soaked as we got this, this sail down and then bagged up and it was dropped into the, um, into the bow compartment where the sails were kept and we pulled out the other head Put that on and i duly then trotted back and it was actually then i suddenly realized that we we're sailing along i didn't feel seasick anymore um so um it was a technique i had to perfect over the coming months as part of my shakedown of uh, of learning when to recognize the motion was getting the better of me and and finding ways to keep myself occupied and um as we sort of look over those um these, these sort of next few months as we were sailing the boat various um things started to reveal themselves we were Again, setting out to another Pacific Island, an atoll, it's about 180 miles from our, the position we were in, in this, this anchorage. The kind of distance you can't do in a day, and you don't want to do it such that you arrive at the atoll at night, because the last thing any boat wants to do is try and cross the reef um, in darkness. So the trick is you set off actually um, early evening, sail overnight and arrive in the morning. And we were duly doing this, and then there was this, this sort of hot electrical smell and uh, we realized that the um, the sat nav and the instruments connected to it had decided to short out, um, you know, easy enough to sort of um, switch everything off and that, and that was fine. But then we were there we were with um, about to set out in the middle of the night to look for a um an atoll with no satellite navigation no boat speed measure um, and none of the other sort of instruments that you might y- you want to, to, to use. Now, you might say, well, common sense is you don't go. But in actual fact, again, I think the real success of our trip boiled down to my father was being an experienced, he'd been in the Royal Navy, he'd been brought up with boats with his parents. He could navigate and dead reckon and he used to still use a sextant and take bearings. Even with the satin, it was a way of double checking. So he thought, yeah, we can, it's, it's, it's a trip I can do. I'm quite happy to dead reckon our way over there. And it's still a feat that amazes me to this day. He, using a sextant and star sights and the occasional banana skin dropped off the the boat to time its speed through the water so we get a rough estimate of its speed, he dead reckoned and found this atoll such that we actually arrived just a little bit earlier than we wanted. It's still a little bit dark and so we were hung around outside um, before sort of going in, in in daylight. And so that is really the purpose of something like a shakedown cruise, not only... You know, something might go wrong. Um, there's a black humour amongst some sailing people. That a shakedown cruise never ends. You're always finding things wrong. But the important thing is when they go wrong, you're able to react to them and, and fix them in the way my my, my father could. And I, I still think that was a, an impressive feat of n- uh, navigation, which to my mind called um called to mind some of the experience of the early sailors that um, were traversing the world without any kind of aid beyond things like sextants and telescopes and, and clocks and that sort of thing. Um, so we were pretty, um, pretty fortunate in that. Um, so the shakedown cruise for us really lasted until we came back into an Australian port um, about after about six months. And there were things that we wanted to do. And she went in for a refit. Um one of the things my my father had felt was that the original bow shape and stern could be um, modified slightly to make uh, the sort of pitching motion um, more damped down. And so again, with his own sort of sketching and a pad, he he re-sculpted and and fiberglassed the shape and changed the shape of the bows and stern um, to make a more, um, um, not say more seaworthy, just to make a a boat that was um, more um, comfortable to ride. And I think, we also had aluminium alloy diesel engines to reduce weight, again they were a fairly new thing. And they were good, they certainly did their, um, did what was after them, but we found that they were getting prone to vibration and that the brackets had uh, fractured under the vibration. So my father was then, we'd arrived at this port with the alternators that were, we need to charge electricity, we were driven off the diesel motors um, sitting in, in wooden brackets and so they were replaced with steel ones. Um, we'd found the vibration was caused by the propellers again we'd set out with what they call feathering propellers which when they're not being used the action of the water flattens the blades out so they create less drag Um, but what we'd found was that the actual blades would still vibrate and they sent the vibration up the propeller shaft to the constant velocity joint where it connected with the engine that vibration um, was then transmitted into the engine casing and the the aluminium alloy didn't like that kind of vibration and so we got these sort of um, cracks. Luckily the main casing in the engine was perfectly intact. It also caused the um, um, constant velocity Joint to spring a leak, and a couple of times we um, had a prop shaft just drop out, and water comes in, which sounds quite dramatic, um, but um, it's it's easily easily rectified. Um, but I think again we um, replaced the constant velocity joint with a conventional what there is a stuffing box, which is a big grease sort of um, metal uh, metal box filled with grease, and, and and the engine the propeller shaft are bolted on together. It's a much firmer firmer seal, so you you we. I mean, these are sort of things that you you discover. You try a particular innovation and see what works and what doesn't doesn't work. Um, and, uh, one, again, one of the more interesting things that happened sailing across the Coral Sea on the way back to Australia for this refit, we suddenly found the steering being a little bit sluggish and we looked over the side and the port rudder had come uncoupled from the steering and, and, and fallen out if you like. But the weight of the wooden rudder, or I should say the buoyancy of the wooden rudder meant it wouldn't drop all the way out. And you, and all it'd been really was a, it's again, it sounds dramatic and I'm perhaps o- over, um, over egging it, but, um. The vibration again probably coming through the the prop shafts had loosened one of the bolts and it meant stopping the boat and um my father and I putting a ladder and going over the side and pushing the, the the rudder back up while my um sisters were um reattaching the nuts and um, bolts and all that sort of thing and it was quite weird because it was the middle of the coral sea and I think the depths must be something, you know, a couple of thousand um, feet um, at least. So it's, I think it's probably one of the deepest oceans of, um, the deep, deepest bit of swimming I'm, I've done in a while. So again, these little um, mishaps and, and hiccups happen. And it was the way we, by that stage, we worked well together as a group, as a team. Um, and again, I think uh, a future episode I will touch on. How we all sort of worked and uh, and lived together in in a confined space, and and how you respond to the the the, the good times uh, and and the adversity. But hopefully, I've given you an impression of what the shakedown um, cruise is. Um, as I say, for boats that are bringing in different crews, they have to do a bit more in making the crews sort of work together. Um, for us, because we were a family, I think we were good at expressing. Um, discontent, if you like, um, um, early on, so it never sort of built up to a head. And as uh, you know, considering the boat had been um, built by my my father in the in the front garden of his house, its first trip out around the Pacific, um, she did very well. I mean the. Um, the various niggles that we, we picked up were easily rectified. And uh, when we left after the refit, she had new wiring in for the, the, the sand. We still kept that, but she had a, then a backup set of mechanical logs so that we had um, uh, plenty of backups there. But um, it was also, for me, um, a bit of a shakedown in discovering um, how to manage um, um, seasickness. So there you have it. That's a sort of a, a whistle-stop commentary on uh, what you do when you shake down a boat. Thank you very much for listening.